Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 24th, 2021, and um, September this month has been dominated, for better or worse, by more news about abortion laws, uh, particularly in Texas. Uh, here we have a, a headline from the New York Times telling us what the, the Texan uh, abortion law actually says. Um, it's a consequence of the Supreme Court decision, um, which has, in many people's eyes, um, made abortion somewhat illegal in, uh, in Texas. Uh, here we have a headline today uh, uh, from the Times saying that lawsuits filed against the Texan doctor, uh, which uh, pro-abortion people are doing, could be a test of the abortion law. A lot of this stuff is going into the courts, uh, but it's having an impact on the real world in Texas, according to Slate. Uh, some Planned Parenthood uh, people have stopped providing all abortions. Um, and meanwhile, abortion providers have asked the Supreme Court for a fast review of the Texas ban. Surprise, surprise. And of course, in a, in a highly politicized America, everyone's coming out either for or against. There we have a headline from The Hill. J.D. Vance, one of the new darlings on the right wing of the Republican Party, is defending the abortion law, which seems to be in some ways upending Roe versus Wade. So it's a good time, for better or worse, as I said, to revisit uh, the Roe versus Wade decision. And this has been done in a magnificent new book by a very distinguished American journalist, Joshua Prager. He has a new book out, The Family Row, an American Story. And I'm thrilled that he's joining us from his home in New Jersey today. Uh, Joshua, welcome. Congratulations on the book. It's getting rave reviews all around the place. I'm sure it's going to be up for lots of awards. For people like myself who are not lawyers and who struggle sometimes with the complexity of the abortion law, give us a, a, a brief narrative overview of Roe versus Wade and how that has changed uh, since the Texas decision. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it um, and for the kind words. So Roe v. Wade basically um, made abortion legal um, through the first, it, it divided the law by trimester. This was back in 1973. It said that through the first trimester, the first three months, um, the decision to have an abortion was entirely up to uh, the woman. Um, the second trimester, which went up until viability, the point at which um, the fetus could not survive outside the womb, right at viability it could, which is right at around 24 weeks. The law said that basically states could impose some restrictions. And then it said that the last trimester abortion was not legal with a few exceptions um, to basically preserve the health, physical or mental health of the pregnant woman. Um, and that law has changed over the years. Um, for example, in 1992, there was another case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which changed 
the framework of the law from going by trimester to having a different sort of standard um, to measure whether a law was legal or not. And that had to do with an undue burden that the court said that if a law posed an undue burden on a pregnant woman, then it was not legal. And if it didn't, it was legal. But for the most part, on the, it's, at its most sort of basic point, abortion still remains legal up until now the point of viability. And the laws that are being put forward now by those in the pro-life camp, those who oppose Roe and abortion, those want to get rid of that, um, that standard. And in fact, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing a case this very term, oral arguments are December 1st, and it's a case out of Mississippi, a law out of Mississippi, which says that abortion is illegal after 15 weeks, which of course is nine weeks earlier than the viability standard. So the court can, if they want, since this law is in direct violation of Roe, they can use this case to overturn Roe completely. Your book is not really the book uh, of a lawyer or a legal journalist. It's, 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 it's a, it's a, very emotional and very complex narrative, The Family Row and American History. The subtitle of the book in some ways I think is more important than the title itself. Yeah. Um, why is The Family Row, your book, an American story? What, 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 what's the book about? It's a good question. So it struck me um, 11 years ago, believe it or not, when I started this, we can talk about how I got into this, but um, I, I started focusing on the fact uh, that, that the woman who was the plaintiff in Roe v. Wade, a woman named Norma McCorby, when I read an article that noted the obvious fact, it hadn't occurred to me prior, but the obvious fact that a law case takes longer than a pregnancy. And so I had incorrectly assumed previously, like many people, that the woman who had won the legal right to have an abortion had had an abortion when in fact she hadn't had an abortion. And it occurred to me, wow, that means somewhere, this was in 2010, there is a man or a woman who is 40 years old whose conception occasioned the lawsuit will be weighed. I said to myself, if that person knows who he or she was born to, that would be a very heavy load to carry. I mentioned that because I did find that person, that woman, she did speak with me. And the family row refers, the family in the title refers to two different families, as I tell it. One is the immediate family of Jane Roe and the three daughters she had with three different men and then relinquished to adoption, all three children. So there's that sort of immediate family. And here we have the image of one of them, uh, Melissa Mills, and then the image of another um, who was... The, the baby doe, I guess, right? Yeah, that's right. The Roe baby, they called her. That's Shelly. Um, and the, the pro-life world had, had seen her. They didn't know who she was, but the fact that she existed, that someone existed, who, as I say, their conception occasioned the lawsuit, they looked at that person as a symbol, as sort of the, the pro-life argument incarnate. Anyway, so the, I, I thought of the family Roe referring to two different families, the immediate family of Norma and her children, and then um, the larger family, the tens of millions of Americans on either side of this issue who sort of fight and feel very strongly about their position, whether for or against. And you ask about the American story. The, well, 
abortion is obviously sort of freighted with very difficult issues, life and death, gender, autonomy, it goes on and on and on. But for various reasons that I talk about in the book, it only sort of, you, America is uniquely riven by this issue. There are, there are not other countries in this world that have been sort of divided similarly. And so I explore that, why America? And I use the sort of immediate family to look at that much broader question. Um, just one more, comp one more sentence on that. The very same issues that have sort of, in my view, pulled America apart, sex and religion and their seeming incompatibility also pulled that immediate family apart. So I, I examined that in the book. Yeah, it's a remarkable, I, I didn't know anything about it. It's a remarkable story. This, this woman, Norma McCorvey, um, I mean, if she hadn't existed, it would have, some brilliant novelist would have made her up. Um, she's so, I don't know whether you'd use the word complicated or contradictory or confused. I mean, all C words. Uh, I was struck with the fact that on the one hand, she was used by the pro-abortion people, particularly Gloria uh, Allred, as the sort of poster child for the rights of abortion. And then later in her life, uh, she became a, a born-again Christian and became very critical of, of abortion. What is it about this woman? What did you find about her, Norma McCorvey, that offers some insight into the bizarre complexity of American life and why abortion is so weirdly central, both in symbolic and real terms, to the to the these countries to this country's division. Well, I do think that abortion is complicated, and I do think that it's fraught. yeah. I mean, no one would argue with that. I don't think. Yeah, and I. But you're right. I, I think it's fraught for good reason. And this woman, as you say, she uniquely embodied that ambivalence. You know, she, as I say, grew up in a very religious home born to sort of fundamentalists. And she didn't feel comfortable in that home for various reasons. One of them was that she was gay and her mother um, beat her for being a lesbian. And where was um, she, where did she grow up? She Joshua. grew up in Texas. My entire book is based in Texas. Which again is, there's something sort of eerily prescient or uncanny about all this. It is wild. The timing and also the location is obviously very much now at the heart and center of what's going on. But anyway, this woman, she, what I, I actually start the book, not only with Norma, but with her mother and grandmother, because I show that just like Norma, they too had had unwanted pregnancies. And what happened these unwanted pregnancies redirected their lives. One of them had to have sort of a shotgun marriage, which was a complicated thing. The other one was forced to relinquish her child, to give up her child, have that child be raised by her mother because it was too horrible for her to sort of be raising a child when she herself was not married. So by the time Norma came along, generations of her family had already been upended in this way. And then of course, when Norma gets pregnant and doesn't want her child, she wants to have an abortion, but abortion is illegal and the child is then put up for adoption. And I write about how, you know, how does she embody this? Well, it's complicated because in this country, more and more and more, there's no middle ground. Both sides have become somewhat extreme in their language. On the pro-choice side, 
They do not look at abortion the way President Clinton famously did as something that ought to be safe, legal, and rare. They say, why should it be rare? Abortion is simply a social and moral good, something that empowers a woman. And on the pro-life side, they now more and more say, abortion needs to be illegal from the moment of conception. Even if you become pregnant via rape or incest, it cannot be allowed. So there's no middle ground. And yet what's fascinating is, despite these sort of camps going in these more extreme directions, the studies show over and again that just like it was in 1973, so too today, the vast majority of Americans believe that abortion ought to be legal, but only up to a point. They believe actually that abortion ought to be legal roughly through the first trimester of pregnancy. And that was exactly what Norma believed. She had to say different things when she represented the two different sides, but that was what she believed in her heart of hearts. She spoke to some people close to her about that, and she spoke to me about that. I spent hundreds of hours with her over the last four years of her life. And so she was a wonderful sort of window into this complicated and very difficult thing here in America. And her life wended its way through both camps and through the lives of very important people on both sides of the issue. So I was able to explore this big American problem through her and her family. Yeah, as you say, um, the American public is, for better or worse, divided. A, a recent Pew Research poll came out showing that um, around six in 10 US adults say that abortion should be legal, but there's a degree of ambivalence about it. And, 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 and the Pew the Pew report suggests that sizable minorities of Republicans and Democrats say that they don't agree with the dominant position on abortion from the party they identify with. So it's a lot more complex than either side presents. On the other hand, Joshua, uh, as one Texan governor famously said, uh, the only thing in the middle of the road are dead, uh, dead animals run over. Um, is there... From, from all the research, you spent 11 years talking, thinking, writing about this. Is there a credible middle ground on this? Well, in other parts of the country, well, I'll step back to say this. There ought to be. There are in other, in other um, uh, countries, for example, the pro-life in this country, they like to say that the pro-choice side, and of course, by the way, neither side uses the term that the other side wants. I made the decision in my book to allow people to use, to be called what they wish to be called. I myself am pro-choice. I mentioned this in my author's note. I thought it would be disingenuous not to, but I did not write this book as an activist. I wrote this book as a journalist. And I think I was incredibly fair um, with both sides. And the proof of that is that they're both angry with me right now, but that's okay. Um, that's good. If, yeah, if, 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 <laughs> if, if neither the pro, the pro or the uh the abortion, uh, uh, yeah, people yeah. for or against abortion, if they're both angry with you, you've done a great job with the yeah, book. Thank you. Congratulations. I mean, there's, a the, there's a lot in the book. I really just tried to be honest. There's a lot in the book, and we can talk about that. That sort of is um, ammunition for either side. But just to sort of get back to your question, the pro-life in this country say, wow, the pro-choice are so radical that they're even more extreme than crazy you know, crazy liberal Western Europe. And they point to countries like Switzerland and France where abortion is only legal, let's say through the first trimester of pregnancy roughly. But it is a false comparison. What they don't say is that until that point when it's legal in those Western European countries, abortion is not restricted. Abortion is generally free. It's available everywhere. 
and there are no obstacles put in your way if you wish to have an abortion. Whereas in this country, there are endless laws and restrictions that are passed to make it both difficult for the woman to have an abortion and difficult for the provider to provide one. Um, so it's very, very complicated. Um, but there is, of course, a middle ground. I mean, obviously, people who are opposed to abortion because they feel that the zygote, you know, the newly, newly fertilized egg is already a human being. They're not going to care if your abortion is early or late in pregnancy. They will say abortion is murder from the moment it is um, the, from the moment of conception. But in my mind and in the minds of many Americans, the majority of Americans, there is a big difference between having an abortion in a first trimester or a third trimester. Um, I'll add that what I did was in telling this book, I wanted, it is complicated, and I wanted people to be able to look at abortion, not through politics, but people. So I mm. set out to sort of humanize both sides. And the way I did that, in addition to just writing about Norma and her children, was I chose three more people, also all Texans, whose lives were incredibly important and, and, and enabled me to write about every part of abortion in this country. So I, I looked at an abortion provider named Curtis Boyd, who started providing abortions in Texas before right. Rome, and now is the largest provider of third trimester abortions in America. I looked at Linda Coffey, who was the lawyer who actually conceived of Roe, found Jane Roe, filed Roe, and people have forgotten all about her because her co-counsel, Sarah Weddington, was the woman who famously argued the case in the Supreme Court at 26. But Linda Coffey is incredibly important that was sort of pushed to the side. Yeah, here we have an image of Coffey uh, as a That's younger right. woman. And, and then the third, the, the third figure in the book is Mildred Jefferson, another fascinating. I want to come to the, back to these three sub-characters uh, in sure. the book in, in a few minutes, um, Joshua. But I'd, I'd like to return to this Norma McCorvey, because to me, she's a remarkable woman, for better or worse. You spent many hours talking to her. How could you summarize what you figured out about this woman who seems so um, hard to put all the different pieces together? Is she the... Uh, you, you talk about uh, the book is called uh, The Family Row, an American Story, but is Norma McCorvey, is she really the American story? Well, you really, what you said earlier was, was right. You could not make this woman up. I mean, or she would have been made up if she didn't exist for real. She was incredibly complicated. People have tried to tell her story before. And the reason it was so hard is because she lied endlessly to give a few examples. And these lies were reported on the front pages of all of our newspapers. She said that her own child was kidnapped by her mother when the truth was, I learned, and I, we can talk about how I was able to confirm these things, that she begged her mother to take the child off her hand. She was not fit to be a mother, wanted her mother to raise that child. She spoke about how she was raped um, in Catholic school when in fact she'd had a consensual um, affair with a woman who was about to become a nun. She spoke about how she was shot at in her Texas home because she was Shane Rowe, when in fact the shooting had to do with a drug deal, and on and on and on. And for the most part, what she was doing 
was reconceiving herself and putting herself out there, not as a sinner, someone who was having sex she wasn't supposed to be having, for example, but as a victim. And that was, that made it very complicated to tell her story. But well, she, uh, uh, we, we've done a few shows this week, one with uh, Tom Nichols, a sort of prominent American commentator who writes for the New Republic. He talks about the, the disease that summarizes contemporary America as narcissism. Was there something narcissistic about this McCovey? Absolutely. Absolutely. She had an insatiable desire and want for attention and love. And one of the reasons that she switched over from the pro-choice to the pro-life camp was that the pro-choice leaders did not give her that love. They marginalized her. In fairness to them, she, as I say, was an unreliable narrator, but still there was an element of class here too. She, she was uneducated. Um, she was complicated. She didn't sort of speak about abortion in the ways they wanted her to. And they yeah. made no room for her at the table. And Norma said, the hell with this. You don't take me seriously. I'm going to make you take me seriously. She would have been very comfortable in, I mean, she, unfortunately, she's no longer around. But she probably would have been very, very comfortable in today's sort of Instagram, Twitter culture. Well, she ended up generating headlines after headline after headline. She was, she loved she turned her plaintiffship into a career. And, and that was something that enabled her to get by. And it was something that became sort of central to her identity, but it was a difficult identity because she was not able to be herself. What she wanted to be in her heart of hearts was someone who supported abortion to a degree and also someone who could be in love with a woman who was gay. And she had to renounce her homosexuality, as I say, when she switched over to the other side. And this was devastating to her. Um, and also she had to, just as she had on the pro-choice side, little by little learning how to um, take the party line and speak about how abortion ought to be legal through the second trimester, at least on the pro-life side. She had to say that abortion ought to be illegal from the moment of conception. She had to attend these sort of ghoulish um, ghoulish memorials for fetuses they would have a sort of fetus yeah. joshua i i wasn't born here so perhaps i have a right to say this i've always found that in america there's this really highly problematic contradiction in 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 in, in how we represent children in both the fetishization of the child and in degrees of cruelty and in now a, a whole industry built around uh, sort of uh, vindicating childhood and representing childhood. What did you learn about childhood in, in terms of talking to McCovey? Uh, and, and perhaps more broadly, what did you learn about this highly problematic American, and I know it's a bit of a generalization, um, American attitude to childhood, which is, of course, so intimately bound up in the abortion rights issue? Well, it was impossible for me not to look at how complicated childhoods affected people for the rest of their lives. The book in some way, you know, deals at its heart with this very famous conundrum of nature versus nurture. Norma's three children were all raised in very different homes. And it was a way for me to examine those childhoods and see sort of what they 
what they led to, what they augured, where, where Norma's children, um, what happened to them when they were young. And they each had sort of very different crosses to bear. The eldest one, who was the only one who had had Norma in her life because she was raised, as I said, by her grandmother, Norma's mother, she suffered at Norma's hand. Norma was totally unfit to be a mother. She remembered to me how Norma once locked her in a car when she was a girl of five so that she could have an evening with her boyfriend. The second one sort of speaks a little bit more to your question. She, her name is Jennifer. She was very honest with me about the, about the struggles she had with, with alcohol and drugs and always wondered, hmm, is this something that maybe I, I share with my birth mother? And, and when she later, when I connected her to Norma at her request, and she had then overcome those demons, but she said, aha, I did have sort of a, pre, uh, a genetic predisposition to these things. And then, of course, the youngest one, who was Shelley. doing pretty well, Shelly. Yeah, until she was 10 days before she turned 19 years old, when she learned that she'd been born to Norma, all of a sudden, she, she felt overwhelmed, not only by a secret that she felt she had to keep, that if anyone learned that she was the quote-unquote role baby, their, their relationship would be sort of contaminated forevermore, but also she didn't want to be seen as a symbol. The fact that the whole pro-life world looked at her, as I say, as this argument against abortion. So their childhoods were all very different, very complicated. Um, and yes, I, 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 I looked at that a lot in this book. There's a lot of detail Basically, the book is amazing detail. I mean, you spent 11 years on this yeah. book. It's a remarkable yeah. achievement. Joshua, um, uh, a few months ago, I had, and I'm sure you know this book and, and, and the author, Gabrielle Glazer, American Baby, A Mother, A Child, and the Shadow History of Adoption on my show, in which um, she writes about the different culture um, 50 years ago. You say that nothing's changed in terms of the abortion debate. But America's changed, hasn't it, in terms of family, in terms of culture? Well, things have changed in terms of the abortion debate. Abortion did not used to be politicized the way it is. And I go through the book as to how, how we sort of got here. Um, but it, what, one of the fascinating things about adoption was that, you know, the pro-life side, they want to say, oh, when a woman has an abortion, she later regrets it. And a woman should relinquish her child to adoption. Well, the studies show actually something very different. They show that the overwhelming majority of women who do have an abortion report feeling relief, not regret. And there is conversely um, an absolute correlation, connection between women who relinquish children to adoption and are and suffer as a result of that from sort of a mental health point of view. So the facts are complicated and Norma, who everyone assumed had an abortion, actually never did have an abortion, but having given up three children to adoption, she suffered enormously. And at the end of her life, when I was spending all of that time with her, she wanted everybody to know that she had not had an abortion. And I write about how complicated and difficult it was for her having relinquish three children to adoption, only to years later through my work, um, come to know who all three of those children were. In terms of tragic lives, Joe Biden has also experienced great loss and he's caught in the middle of this thing as a Catholic, as someone who's in some ways in favor of abortion rights. Um, 
can by in in your view can can Biden establish a credible center on this issue? Well, the country has become so polarized now that now sort of in anticipation, setting aside even what's going on in Texas, in anticipation of this case out of Mississippi Dobbs that is going to sort of put Roe back on the table um, in the Supreme Court, both sides are desperate to sort of protect their point of view. So on the pro-choice side, and Biden is pro-choice, on the pro-choice side, they're saying, well, we need to legislate. We need to protect Roe through legislation. The hell with what the Supreme Court does. We need to make it that abortion is legal regardless. Of course, the pro-life do not want to do that. And we, we now live in a country with a divided House and Senate, and we'll see what, what actually happens. My guess is that there, thanks to President Trump, and his three appointments to the Supreme Court, my guess is that this court will actually either flatly overturn Roe uh, in a few more months in June and make abortion completely illegal. Well, it, what, what they will do is give the, return the question back to the states and then roughly half of the states will make it illegal. Or what they will do is keep abortion legal, keep Roe really uh, law in name only and just further eviscerate it. Either way, if you believe in a right to abortion, um, you are going to be seeing that right enormously deteriorated in the coming years. Joshua, and a lot of people will be familiar, a lot of our readers will be familiar with your prize-winning best-selling book, The Echoing Green, The Untold Story of Bobby Thompson, Ralph Branker, and The Shot Heard Around the World, which of course is about the 19, uh, a baseball game in 1951. Um, why did you move from, I wouldn't say sports journalism, but focusing on that to, 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 to this long, highly, uh, highly complicated investigation of abortion well, in America? The, the books actually have some things in common. They I both, suspected that, actually. Yeah, yeah, you're right. They both had sort of a similar genesis. I write a lot about historical secrets, things that are unknown, but are connected to things that tens of millions of people care about. So in the case of the baseball game, there was a rumor that this very famous team, the most famous, excuse me, this very famous sports moment, the most famous moment in baseball history um, was sort of that the team had been cheating, but it was only a rumor. And I wanted to find out if that was true. And I did confirm it was true. And similarly, it was the sort of unknown about this, this Roe baby that, that drew me into this story. I was fascinated also by people whose lives changed in a moment. I, just to tell you one thing about me, 30 years ago, I had a spinal cord injury. I was in a bad bus accident mm. and I use a cane now. And, and I know what it's like to have a life divided into before and, and after. And both of these books um, have characters whose lives divided into before and after. In the case- Yeah, of the I wondered about that, um, Joshua. You, it, it's well publicized. You had this terrible accident in Israel where you became semi-paralyzed. Yeah. Um, you've, you've spoken about it. You've written about it. There's a number of TED speeches, which are very moving, very articulate. Um, do you think that experience, it wasn't a near-death experience, but as you say, your life entirely changed, your relationship with your body changed. Do you think it changed your mind or changes your thinking on, on abortion itself? 
Well, it actually was a near-death experience. I was in a bus and was needed to be sort of taken out very quickly. Um, um, my breathing was was very labored because I injured my neck very high up, C3, C4. I don't think it changed my thinking on abortion. What I would say is that I was not, maybe like many of us, I didn't think too closely or clearly about this issue. Um, I just sort of had a vague sense of what I thought ought to be the case. But in writing this book and spending all of these years um, on it and spending time with people on both sides of the issue, I came, as I say, to understand that abortion is complicated for good reason, that on both sides, there are very compelling arguments for and against it. On the pro-life side, they would say the humanity of the fetus. On the pro-choice side, they would say all of the reasons a woman will need to end her pregnancy. Again, I told you how I feel personally, but it made me understand that it's complicated and that um, having it so polarized in this country does not do anyone any favors. And so I tried to, as I say, enable people to examine this issue through human beings. And, and that has helped me um, understand the issues much better. You've done a very good job as a nonfiction writer sometimes struggle with um, articulating complexity. Um, Delilo, of course, wrote a book about the shot heard around the yeah, world, underworld. Uh, in a, in a very sophisticated way. It seems as if, um, the family row American story could also be treated, uh, brilliantly by a, by a great fiction writer. What are your thoughts on representing someone like McCorvey in a nonfiction versus of fiction like, particularly given her love of telling untruths? Well, I, I discovered her private papers in the former home, in the home of her former partner. And those papers were sort of what enabled me little by little. They were like a roadmap to her life. Um, I, I acquired them from her. She didn't want them. And they enabled me little by little to track down the people in her lives. I mentioned that because you know, detail is the mortar of any good story. And I was able to present the story of Norma in, 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 in a very novelistic sort of way. So you know, you know about what she liked to eat. You know about her lovers. You know about her clothes and the music she listened to. You know what the weather is like when she heads off on these various trips around the country. And, and I think writing about it in that novelistic way enabled me to sort of have my cake and eat it too, having it be sort of very compelling, I hope, but also be very just sort of true to the fact nothing in this book is conjured or made up. And, um, you know, there are 200 pages of footnotes, so you know where everything yeah, it's, it's from. It's a remarkable achievement. It's 11 years of work, uh, The Family Row in American History by Joshua Prager. I think it's going to win a lot of the awards this year. It's a magnificent achievement. Congratulations, Thank uh, you. Joshua. I, I, I'm afraid we didn't have time to come back to Mildred Jefferson or Linda no Coffey problem. or Curtis Boyd, but people need to read the book for that. Uh, people certainly need to read your book, um, Joshua Prager, a non-fictional treatment of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a story that is worthy of, of, a, of a great novel and a great novelist. Um, congratulations again. What else should people be reading in these strange times, Joshua? You're in... Uh, your home in New Jersey. I know you 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 moved your family from uh, Manhattan to New Jersey uh, in post COVID. Yeah. But what would you suggest people well, read in addition to laugh. your book? 
my friends will laugh because I always return to it. The epigraph in my book comes from my favorite novel. You may have heard of it, Moby Dick. And oh, I, write, yes. I think see I how have. elastic our stiff prejudices grow when love comes to bend them. That basically it's impossible to be prejudiced against a group if you know them because you come to love them. So I would always tell people to read Moby Dick. And then I'll put a little plug in for an interesting book that I did with the great graphic designer, Milton Glaser, the person who designed the I Love New York logo. I took passages about every age from birth to 100, from novels, essays, it's poems. And I put them so that, put them together in a list so that the whole arc of a lifetime sort of passes before you in these pages and Milton turned it into a beautiful book. So there you go, Melville and me. How's that for, for ego? Yeah, you're almost as narcissistic as the uh, as the character, the main character in your book, Joshua Pregarillon. And perhaps you'll come back on the show and talk about that other uh, book you did, uh, the the picture book. It sounds really good. Uh, congratulations on the book, Keep Well, and uh, real uh, real honor to have you on the show. Thank you again. So much, I appreciate it.